Views and opinions expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of their employers. This podcast may not be suitable for children. Adults may find details triggering and or offensive. Listener's discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. This is Priscilla. And this is Norma. And you're listening to... It's a mystery for me. Me too. messages like what you're starting a podcast yeah shocked a few people shocked a lot of people (laughs) but that's what we're here for the shock factor today's episode is an unsolved case and the difficult thing about unsolved cases is that there isn't a moment where you go got them you're left feeling like where's the closure and if you feel like that imagine the victim's family Today, we're talking about the Tamara Green case, and that's green with an E at the end for anyone who's going to Google her. All right, so has any other podcast done episodes on her? Yeah, but I only found two episodes about her, with the most relevant being on the Crime Town podcast, which aired, I think, in like 2019 or 2020. But it was part of a larger story about Detroit, and a good chunk of the episodes focused heavily on Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. He was the mayor of Detroit at the time of Tamara's death. You know I love me some true crime TV shows and podcasts, mm-hmm. right? I've you watched sure so do. many episodes of 2020. I don't know why I do this, especially at like one in the morning, but hey, why not? <laughs> Just to increase my paranoia, I guess. But none of these crime TV shows have ever done an episode on Tamara Green. Hmm. And that's weird to me because her case has political ties to it, allegedly, of course. Right. And it reminds me of the Chandra Levy case. Have you heard of that one? No, I've never heard. Okay. So she was an intern in D.C. She supposedly had an affair with like a congressman and all of a sudden she ended up dead. Chandra Levy, who is white, by the way, has had episodes after episodes and documentaries and follow-ups, but nothing for Tamara Green. Mm. Well, that's not too surprising. That's true. But that's exactly why we have to do this podcast, to shed light on black females and give them the platform and the voice that they deserve. And that's a perfect segue to tell you guys about the research I did for today's episode. I read one of two books. The book I read is called They Called Her Strawberry by KC Marks. I would have read the second one, but I felt pretty comfortable with everything I learned from the first book and from the rest of my sources, which were some interviews from Detroit local TV stations. I forgot to tell you, by the way, I reached out to them via email doing the lawyer thing because I want to know if I could play some audio on the podcast and guess what they said. They denied you. They didn't deny me. They asked me for some money. Really? Yes. They asked me for $500. Wow. That's that's a lot. That's a lot. And I was just like, you know what? I could just read it. 
And by read it, I mean I could just look at the transcript and read it to y'all while I'm recording this episode. Duh. I also read tons of articles. Most of them were from Detroit local press. And of course, I listened to the Crime Town episode about her that I mentioned earlier. For a more accurate list of all of today's sources, please check out our website at www.itsthemysteryforme.com. So how long has her case been unsolved? Her case has been unsolved for 18 years. Wow. Yes. She was murdered in April of 2003. Exactly. Wow. That's a long time. A long time without justice. But I hope that in the near future she gets justice because watching some of the interviews, especially with her kids, truly heartbreaking. For real. Can't imagine. So this story has a lot of twists and turns, and I don't have many graphic details at all, so no no worries about that, because Norma has, like, a sensitivity to gory things. We cannot watch any type of movies with Norma. Like, she will veto it. Absolutely not. Like, sibling night is canceled if we place her in movies, so this case does not have that much graphic details at all. I can't promise you that you won't get whiplash, though, because it is a crazy roller coaster ride. So get your neck brace ready, girl. But I'm going to try to make <laughs> I'm going to try my best to make it comprehensible for everybody. And in an effort to make it more comprehensible, we're going to go ahead and break up the episodes into two parts. So part one will be today, and then part two will air next Tuesday. And in part one, we'll discuss some background about Tamara Green, who is dropped out gorgeous, by the way. Absolutely stunning. I like to call it BG before the gram. No filter. No filter, but you know what? I love a good filter. You sure do. So what we not going to do is hate on people. You sure do. Built Norma, Norma, relax <laughs> yourself, okay? Anyways, back to what I was saying. Part one is today. We're going to talk about some information about Tamara Green, some background, and then we'll take you through a timeline up to and through her murder. And then in part two, we'll focus on theories about her murder, and we'll tell you what's going on with the case today. As I discuss the people in today's episode, just keep in mind that everyone is innocent until proven guilty. No one has ever been arrested for this case. Everything I talk about is already out there for public consumption. I'm just retelling it. And see, that's the lawyer in me coming out because I'm covering all my legal bases. You ain't going to get me. You ain't catching me out here. Okay. So let's dive into this Tamara Green case. Tamara was affectionately known as Tammy by her grandma, whose name was Bertha. Grandma Bertha. Mm -hmm. And a couple of people in her life. It just seems like it was a common name they used. She was also known as Strawberry, but we'll talk more about that nickname in a bit. For my astrology lovers out there, Tamara was born on May 11th, 1976. So at the time of her death, she was about a few weeks shy of turning 27 years old. She called Detroit, Michigan her home. Now, what I noticed about a bunch of sources is that they didn't have too many details about her childhood or like teenager life, etc. What I did learn is that she did not grow up with a ton of money. Sometimes she didn't even have food to eat. That's what her reverend said. Her reverend also said that she said she would not live how she was raised. She wanted better for herself. 
Speaking of her reverend, in the Crime Town podcast, he makes it a point to say that she did not have her father in her life, but she was so close to her reverend because he knew her since she was a kid that she actually called him dad. Wow. Her calling him dad, by the way, is not in the Crime Town podcast. I saw that, I believe, in the Casey Marks book. The Reverend goes on to give her some crucial life advice, a lot of times about relationships with guys. And you'll see later that she also goes to him when she's in a panic state. At the time of her murder, Tamara had three kids. Her son was 10, her daughter was seven, and her youngest daughter was around two years old. Wow. So they were all very young. Super, super young. Yes. So that makes this even more tragic. Yeah. It's during a time where you really need your mom in your life. Yeah. Those are the crucial years. That's right. I know some of you are doing the math in your head right now. She had a 10-year-old son at the time of her death, so that means she was a teen mom. Yes, that's true, but you know what? In an interview from 2010, her son had nothing but amazing things to say about her, just saying that she was a great mom who loved them. All right, so was Tamara working? Was she in school? Um, So she was in school doing her prereqs for nursing school specifically. That's what her daughter's father said, and the daughter I'm talking about is a seven-year-old. Her name is Ashley, Um, and his name is Terrace Jackson. Her son said that she was also a trained dancer, and she was a stripper, but she did it to pay for school. And by the way, no stripper hate will be tolerated in here. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Her seven-year-old's father said that one day Tamara just seemed to recognize all of a sudden that her visual assets could be of value. And well, the rest is history. And this is how the strawberry nickname is introduced. I don't know why they called her Strawberry, though, because none of the sources I read or listened to said anything about it. Isn't that weird? That's weird. I mean, I like strawberries. Strawberries can be sweet. Yeah. I mean, she probably picked the nickname because she is, like, super sweet or she was probably super nice and it probably just got people to open their wallets, like, whoever came across her, women, men, whoever. And that is a true talent, y'all. While her stripper side hustle does not define her, we do talk about it because this side hustle leads her to the Detroit mayor's mansion. And this is where the plot begins to thicken. And it's also the beginning of our timeline. But before we dive into the timeline, I guess there's no better time than now to give you the Clipsnote version about Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick. And as I'm telling Norma this, I just know she ain't going to hold back. I can feel it. If y'all care, he's a Gemini. That Enough said. Okay, story over. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So Kwame Kilpatrick got his bachelor's from FAMU in Florida. He got his JD from a school in Michigan. And he married his college sweetheart, Carlita, and has three kids with her. But by the end of the story, you'll see that he is known for many things. But one thing he's infamous for is being Detroit's youngest mayor. He was 31 when he was elected. Wow. Could you imagine? That's young. That's young. I'm almost 31. Could you imagine me running? No, absolutely not. I'm sorry. I could do everything else, (laughs) but I I could not run That's a negative. Okay, that's a negative. But for Kwame, hmm, I think by the end of the story, you're going to be like, yeah, it was a negative for him, too. But Mm -hmm. his mom was actually really big in politics. She was even 
in the Congress House of Representatives for quite some time. Yep. And before that, she was like in the local legislature and the House of Representatives there in Michigan. So maybe for any other 31-year-old who hasn't been groomed to be in politics, it seems far-fetched to be mayor at that age, but not the case for Kwame. Yeah. And so as he made his way through the local legislature and then ran for mayor, I think people looked at him and saw black excellence. And I think they also saw someone that looked like them. And let Mm -hmm. me paint the picture of Kwame Kilpatrick for y'all. He was black, 6'4", personable AF. He dressed the part, big old suits. And he had a diamond earring in his left ear. Yes, child. He did. I'm going to have to look this up later. Yeah. Actually, let's look it up now. I'm going to show you a picture. Because, yeah, this needs to be seen. Look at this. Oh, wow. I showed Norma a picture of him basically looking like he's making a prayer motion. Isn't that diamond he's in huge? Thought. Yeah. Yeah, the di- yeah, the diamond earring. That diamond earring huge. is huge. But it's kind of a known thing just as a minority in general, definitely a black minority. You feel pressure to code switch at work, which means you feel pressure to tone down your blackness, the way you dress, the way you talk, how you wear your hair, wearing mm-hmm. earrings, wearing not wearing earrings. But Kwame, he's brushing it off clearly from this picture. Mm-hmm. Okay. But eventually he stopped wearing the earring because he conveniently lost it. Anyways, whatever positive imagery he had began to slowly chip away once he became mayor. He took office in early 2002 and quickly became known as the hip hop mayor. Guess who gave him that name? Who would give him that name? I'm not sure. Russell Simmons. So basically, Russell Simmons held a hip hop summit concert in Detroit in 2002. And basically, the Hip Hop Summit, he's one of the founders of it. And it's just using like hip hop music to cultivate change in the black community, especially for black youth. So it does have a good cause. But Russell Simmons, okay, another day, another day. <laughs> um, so he gives him the, the nickname. And, and guess who's at the Hip Hop Summit? None other than Eminem. But no Eminem slander will be tolerated. This was back in 2002. But anyways, so Kwame also goes on to do about two-ish terms as mayor, which was filled with tons of scandals, by the way. But I think most people would argue, homeboy brought it on himself. But I'll let you be the judge because there's more tea on that later. Now back to the timeline. The starting point of our timeline is a party at the mayor's mansion in September of 2002, which was Labor Day weekend. Now, just FYI, there's different versions told about the party. I'm mainly sticking to the one from the book that I described earlier, okay? The Casey Marks book. And take this how you want, because the author of the book literally says before, like, the book begins, maybe, like, in italics, The story went like this. And it's told like from the perspective of Tamara as if she's talking. Oh. Yeah. So I was reading this book and I was like, huh? But it's like they basically constructed what they believed happened based off of like all the research they did. And I mean, they read everything and put it together. So here we go. Tamara. 
Mare and her friend or acquaintance were asked by their boss at the strip club to work this party and were supposed to make a thousand dollars for the party each, by the way. Um, not like in total. And it was a high price because important people were in attendance, think government officials and police officers. But this was not her first rodeo. She's used to this kind of clientele, like high profile people. At least that's what her daughter's father seems to insinuate. He said that at one point she was getting picked up by drug dealers from their house. Now, I don't know. When he said that, I was like, wait, she's like living at home and she's like, like, are they living together? I wasn't sure. Mm. But she was getting picked up by drug dealers, which concerned him. And then eventually he said that government officials were the ones picking her up in, like, unmarked cars, tinted windows. Like, clientele just completely changed. Wow. Yes. Upgrade. Upgrade for real. Now, when she gets to the party, apparently there are... At least there's at least one other stripper there. From what I can make out from like the different accounts, I think there are four strippers possibly. Tamara, her friend from work, a third stripper that was possibly a cop. Yeah. How would that I don't even know. But this is like this has come up actually in like a few different sources that there was a stripper who was a cop. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So And then there's another fourth stripper, and I think her name is Tamika. She ends up, like, giving an affidavit years later. But I don't think Tamika and her friend from work are the same person because her friend from work actually ends up leaving town. So we'll talk about that in a second. Oh, yeah, and an affidavit is a written statement in which someone just says, essentially, like, I swear what I wrote down is the truth. And basically, you can submit an affidavit as evidence in the court of law. Now back to the party. They've changed into their gear. They're ready. They go out there. They're having a good time. What's the song that's out at that time? Back That Ass Up is probably playing in the background. Everybody run into... It's a 9-9-2000. Everybody run. (laughs) And then Carlita, the mayor's wife, apparently comes home. Okay. And wait, he's having this party at his house? Okay. Yes. Let's be clear. (laughs) Wait, what? Let's be clear. This party is happening at the Detroit mayor's mansion, which is owned by the city of Detroit. That's really, I'm sorry, that, that's I out know. of pocket. Yeah, really. That's out of pocket. That's that one word for me. it. That's one word for it. And the second surprise is, wait a minute, you're having this party and your wife, it, like, your wife wasn't there to begin with, number one. Number she two. She doesn't know about it? She doesn't know about it. Doesn't she live in the same home? It's nighttime. Where would she be? I guess it's Labor Day weekend. Maybe she was with family. I don't know. Maybe. All right. So the story goes that Carlita pops up unannounced and she sees Tamara on Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick in some sort of compromising position. Those are the words a lot of sources use. I did find a source that said lap dance. So let's just say lap dance. So she's giving him a lap dance. Somehow, it goes from that to Carlita having a table leg. Now, I don't know how she got this table leg. Did she break it off the table like the Incredible Hulk? I don't know how this table leg got there, but this has been consistent in every story. She gets a table leg, and she basically knocks everybody upside the head, and then some. No, she leaves them injured. Like, everyone goes to the hospital after this. What? Yes, that is the tea. 
And by everyone, I mean the strippers only. So there was no beating down of Kwame Kilpatrick. Tamara gets one of the cops' radios because remember, there are cops at this party and she radios in that an officer is down. And now units are rushing to the house, right? Okay. Now, when I read that, I wasn't sure if she was saying officer down because maybe the stripper who's like half officer, half stripper is down. Or if she's just being smart and saying, let me let me radio in. Like, this is getting out of control. Yeah. Anyways, whoever's radio that was, like, takes it back from her and ends up saying, like forget it like calls it off like nope nope cancel all units cancel all units okay i thought at this point in the story like oh this is it for her no 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 it wasn't it it wasn't it not yet at least hmm. so they end up bringing her to the hospital and apparently she uses a fake name because there's never any record of her being there let me just be clear about something with this party this infamous party would have happened only nine months into Kwame Kilpatrick being the mayor. Okay, wow. And I say would have because, and we're going to take a little detour here. We're going to go down a rabbit hole. Some people say the party didn't happen. Yeah, okay. that's a doozy. Hmm. Mayor Kilpatrick said it didn't happen. The attorney general at the time, Mike Cox, said it didn't happen. The mayor goes as far as to say this in an interview. And this interview was in 2003. This is after um, Tamara's death and everything. And I'm thinking that he gives this interview and he says what he says because it's probably, you know, some heat is probably coming his way. Right. You know, she's murdered. And then people are now trying, people are trying to connect the dots and they're trying to connect the dots to the party. So this is what he says. And I quote, I would never disrespect my God, my wife, or my children with this nonsense, like a rumor at a party, quote unquote, right? And he didn't say a rumor of a party. He did say a rumor at a party. Okay, I watched the video a million times, so I'm like, bad grammar alert. Anyways, his statements are so colorful and telling because he does end up disrespecting his God, his wife, and his kids when he decides to have an affair with his chief of staff, who was his high school sweetheart. Remember I told you Carlita's his college sweetheart? Oh, yeah. No. Oh oh yeah. <laughs> so you out here giving these speeches. Just very, very arrogant person is wow. what's coming across. So now you're lying, but you'll see how this catches up to him. We gonna get there. So back to this party not happening. Who else said it did not happen? Some journalists from the Detroit Free Press, and they talk about this on the Crime Town podcast. Basically, their argument is we've published other damaging stories of him later on when all the scandals start coming out, and you'll see what those scandals are. They even win a Pulitzer Prize for their journalism, okay? So they're saying, why wouldn't we tell this story? Well, I I could think of a few reasons why you wouldn't want to tell this story, because the other stories are just about him. This story, if this party did happen, and there are a lot of people, a lot of people, it would compromise not just one person, a lot of people. I'm just saying. But there are people, luckily, who say it did happen. The chief of Southfield, Michigan Police Department was invited. 
invited to this party and he said he didn't go because the body language of the person who was like extending the invite he's like it was essentially very sketchy and he knew shit was about to pop off there and he didn't want no he didn't want no smart man smart smart man the thing is he can't remember who invited him but he remembers it was likely like another cop who invited him who else says this party happened well there's an ems worker EMS is emergency medical services. Um, I'll use it interchangeably with EMT, with the actual people that do it, right? Yeah. All right. Michael Kearns, okay? He comes forward and he says it did happen. And he actually met Tamara Green on her way to the hospital. What's interesting is that he gives an affidavit for a separate lawsuit that we'll talk about. And he gives an interview with the Crime Town podcast. And some of the details are a little blurry because by the time the Crime Town podcast comes out, which was like, I want to say it was like 2019 or 2020, he had had a stroke. So he even, wow. yeah, so he even sounds very different. But basically, the gist of it is this he met Tamara at some point that night after she had been injured. She told him her name and she told him that Carlita Kilpatrick had beat her up. That's what she told him. That part of his story has not changed ever. Now, the details of, like, whether he met her at the hospital, whether it was at a gas station and she called 911 from the gas station, that part is fuzzy, but everything else has been consistent through these years. He has just never come forward before because, like a lot of people in this case, he was in fear of his life. Right. In fear for his life, I mean. He was scared something was going to happen to him. Another Detroit EMT worker comes forward, and this article was published in 2008, and this is what he said, and I quote, he goes to the hospital, right? So on quote really quick, because I didn't say it. <laughs> but he goes to the hospital where he works, and he, he's about to start his shift, and he gets approached by mad like bodyguards, and he's like, what's going on? He asks his coworker. And the coworker says, and I quote, Carlita beat some bitch down. Yes, that's what the coworker said. And then what was interesting is that is that the boss of the EMT workers made them all leave. Hmm. Why would you make them all leave? That's a little if, odd. If the mayor that's isn't a... there with her, like there's apparently this thing where like the mayor's team brought her to the hospital. Like I said, she used a false alias because they never could find paperwork. And so these EMT workers are basically saying, we were there that night. We saw the black SUVs pull up. We definitely saw Tamara Green there. Right. She was there. But they want to keep it hush-hush. So they're that's why on the low, low. they're trying to tell them, hey, we, we, mm-hmm. got, we got this handled. Yes. But to dismiss all your EMT workers, what if there's an emergency? You see what kind of, like, power there is in this already? So to be clear, at what point did these EMT workers give these statements? Okay, so technically, these EMT workers give these statements years later because, basically, Tamara's kids sue the city of Detroit. I'm not going to say why yet, but yeah. Okay, someone else who said that the party happened, a stripper that was there. She gives an affidavit years later. Her name is Tamika. And she basically said that at this party, they had all kinds of stuff, girl. They had marijuana. They had cocaine. People were going crazy. And she said that a lot of Detroit police officers were at the event. 
and she was paid a thousand dollars. So she vouches for this. She's like, I was there. Like I was one of the strippers. This party did happen. So all of that to say with the party, I'm going to go on the side of saying it likely happened. It likely happened. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. All right. So let's go back to the hospital. Okay. Tamara leaves the hospital at this point. And I'm going to resume the story still using the same book by Casey Marks. It seems to me like Tamara was always gung-ho on filing this police report. That's the vibe I got from reading the, reading the book. So her friend who was also at this party, I don't think it was Tamika. I think it was the friend from the strip club. I think they were two different people. She goes and she talks to this friend, like she calls her up on the phone and she says to the friend, I'm going to the police department to file a report. You need to come with me. And the friend says, "Uh uh-uh, girl, that's all you. That ain't me. Like, I'm staying out of it. And the friend even reveals, like, there's somebody outside of my house watching me. That's what her friend says. She was afraid to leave her house. Right. So she was really serious about like, no, I'm not involved. I'm not filing a police report. And she never filed a police report. As a matter of fact, she moves away. Apparently she moves to Atlanta, Georgia. Do we know anything else about her? No, I don't even know her name. Know nothing else about her. Hopefully she's out there and safe and okay. I know. Hopefully she is okay. So... Listen, Tamara, she just brushes this off. But then her boss, you know, the one from the strip club, he comes to visit her house. And he also says to her, yeah, you can't file this. And she's like, why? And he's like, well, there are some people that came to my place of work and told me to come here and tell you that you can't file it. So don't file it. And her attitude about all of this is, who are you to tell me what I can and cannot do? So, yeah, for her, this was pretty much a dub. She's like, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so she ends up calling up Grandma Bertha. Love Bertha. And Grandma Bertha definitely gives her some sort of matriarch speech of like, don't let nobody put their hands on you. Mm -hmm. So at this point, Tamara's like, I'm going to go file a police report. And she does that. And it mentions in the book, like, when she goes to file the police report, she leaves her home. A, a cop car is slowly driving by, and she has never seen anything like this before. All of a sudden, she sees this. She still goes, though. She files the police report. The officer who takes the report are, is supposedly very nonchalant with her and very, like, whatever. But she files it, okay? And that is when shit goes left y'all because all of a sudden weird stuff just starts happening she is seeing a car watching her in the middle of the night in the book it does say it was a white suv which is important to remember for later but sometimes it's just different cars there's cop cars like i say driving down the road very slowly and she's getting calls like in the middle of the night waking her up let's go back to 2002 when we had house phones and that house phone would ring in the middle of the night you know how scary that was if someone was calling you at three in the morning you always thought something bad was happening so imagine like she has three kids somebody's calling her at three in the morning she has loved ones she's probably like thinking every single time something's wrong and it's like for nothing it's just people hanging up wow yes 
So after a while, she's kind of just like frustrated with this. And so she consults dad, AKA the Reverend Ken Hampton. And she calls him up and she says, I need to meet you. And they don't meet at the church. This is how paranoid she is. And he could sense it. So they meet at a bookstore. And when she finally sees him, she tells him, and this is what he says in the Crime Town podcast, she says her life is in danger. And she just kept repeating to him, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And he kept saying, who, like, so who's hurting you? Like, who's bothering you? Like, who are you afraid of? And she never said who it was. I think he regrets possibly not asking her more, right. pressing her more about it, you know? Um he suggests at that moment for her to go go to her mom. Her mom was like not in town. Her her mom's name is Brenda, by the way. So her mom's Brenda and grandma's Bertha. So her mom's apparently not in town. I don't know if that means she lives somewhere else, but he was like, go to your mom, go to your mom. He says that's the last time that he spoke to her. So between him speaking to her yes. and her passing. Yes. How much time was that? Two or three months. Okay. Yeah. Because this is happening. So she files a police report after Labor Day, right? And so, like, these things are continuously happening all through the end of 2002 and even going into January to the point that she actually, like, leaves her house and, like, goes to her boyfriend's house and hides out there. Wow. So where are her kids during this time? Oh, yeah. That's definitely a good question. The book mentioned that, mentioned a conversation she had with her son's father where she said, you know, can you just hold on to him for a little bit longer? And he was totally fine with it. He, he's like, oh, I love spending time with him. It's fine. But they didn't mention anything about her other two kids. So I can only assume that they were with their fathers or with family members and stuff. It seemed like Ashley's dad was pretty involved in her life, too. Um, so I I feel like that's probably what was happening. But remember Tamika from earlier, like the stripper that I told you about who said like the party happened and they were doing marijuana and cocaine and all this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, she says that Tamara actually stayed with her for a little bit. And during the time that Tamara stayed with her, Carlita was apparently blowing up her phone and threatening her. Threatening who? Which one? definitely a good question so Carlita was calling Tamara's phone and she was threatening Tamara specifically wow just a lot that's a lot y'all so let's talk about her boyfriend because she does end up staying with him for a little bit here's a little bit of info on him because there's actually not a lot out there about him his name's Eric Big E Big E not Big E the rapper Mitchell but apparently They met at her job when a customer was getting a little too handsy and he handled that period. Okay. And he was a drug dealer. What kind? I don't know the kind with money because it looks like he gave her a ton of cash. This is what the book says again. Okay. We're back to the Casey Marks book. Apparently he kind of convinced her to start a lingerie business. So he gave her like 30 racks to do that. And so she was doing that because I think he wanted her just out of the stripper game. Okay, fine. And this is just interesting information to me because, again, out of all the sources I read, none of them mentioned that she was getting out of the stripper game. No one mentioned this $30,000 thing and all that. No, no one else. This is all like leading up to her murder. It's months and months. Now we're like entering like the springtime. And this is something worth mentioning because she goes to another party and there's a fight that breaks out. 
at this party, there's this dude there named Derrett Little D King. Little D, yes, he was short. Apparently, he's like 5'6 or whatever. I'm, I'm like 5'6. No, I'm 5'7. You're 5'6. Right. Okay. 3'4. He's short. No big deal. Um, but he is affiliates with Big E, Eric, okay? With her boyfriend. They're both in the drug game together. Cool. So I don't know what kind of beef they had going on between them, but they were at a party. It seems like little D kind of came on to her and was being a little rough with her. And so much so that he had the opportunity to give her not one, but two black eyes. This is only one to two weeks before her murder. Oh, what? Yeah, I don't know what kind of party it was. I only found this information, like, one source, really, that talked about it. I want to say it was, like, called Crime in Detroit that talked about it. But, again, all the sources will be on the website, so y'all can check it out yourself. So her boyfriend's friend, or affiliate, yes. beat her Yes, at this party? Yes. Wow. Oh, it gets, it gets crazier. Her boyfriend was, was apparently there. And then guess what happens? He beats little d he beats that up as he should as he should period like how are you gonna go how are you gonna put hands on somebody's anybody's daughter sister mother i'm just not with that kind of bs and a lot of people are with that but that's for another episode now we're at the part about her murder the day night of her murder so it was april 30th 2003 at around three in the morning So the night she was killed, she had pulled up to his house. And by his house, I mean her boyfriend, Big E, Eric's. And the KC Marks book said that she had pulled up because she needed more money for the store. Like, they were about to, like, launch it the next month, etc. I actually found a source at some point this week that actually said she was there to, like, drop him off or something like he was with her they were out and she had dropped him off either way she was there on his block pulled over to the side when all of a sudden a white suv pulls up and whoever's in the car shot up her car she was hit three times once behind the left ear once through the jaw and once through the left arm and chest Remember, her boyfriend's in her car, by the way, at this point. He was hit five times. Oh, wow. Five times. And I think this is interesting to point out because I've seen in a lot of sources, people are like, he did not tell her to get down. And I don't know how they would know this, but this is actually like a few like newspaper sites. Wait, I don't so know the boyfriend got down? Yes. I'm confused. So apparently the boyfriend was able to see the white SUV coming and maybe the guy's hand coming out of the car with the gun. And he ducked. And a few sources say emphasize the fact that he did not tell her to duck. But I don't know what I honestly don't know what to make of that. Yeah, because you know what? Sometimes things like that happen so quickly that right. it's just like. Right. You're reacting, but you don't have time to right. That happens. Tell so the fast. other person, right. so you never know. Well, like I said, he was hit five times, and he gets out the car and he starts knocking on doors, asking for help, and no one opened the door. Can you imagine someone knocking on your door? Would you open the door? No, but I would definitely call nine one one. 
Well, that's exactly what happened here. And then 911 got to the scene. And unfortunately, Tamara Green was pronounced dead at the scene at around 3.40 in the morning. News of Tamara's death spread pretty fast, but you won't believe how Terrace found out. And Terrace is her seven-year-old's father. Guess. Someone called him? No, he was watching the news. He was watching the 10 o'clock news, 11 o'clock news. Oh, wow. Yes. And their daughter was right next to him, and she was sleeping, thank goodness. But he doesn't remember if he saw her name across the screen or if she saw, he saw the car, but he knew, like, she was gone. And he then says that he didn't tell their daughter for three days. And the reasons he gives, and this is on the Crime Town podcast, by the way, the reasons he gives is because he wanted to make sure it was true, first of all. And then he didn't know what to say. And when he eventually tells her, this is how he describes her reaction. He says, you can see their life forces coming out of them. She was just crushed. It was like Santa Claus died. Yes. That's so sad. I know. That's really sad. And in an interview she gives, and in this interview, she's 21, right? At the time of her mom's death, she was seven. She says that she is mentally damaged by this. Whoever did this, you mentally damaged this girl. Like, you douchebag. But anyways, I digress. Because guess what? You got to answer for it someday. That's what I've been thinking the whole time researching these cases. I'm like, okay, what's done in the dark comes to light. I'm not trying to get religious on people. I'm just being honest. There's no way, unless you're a sociopath, how can you go to sleep and know that you did this and feel nothing? It's going to catch up with you. If the streets don't catch up with you, it's going to catch up with you. Sorry, y'all. I had to get a little gangster there when I said if, the, if if they don't catch up to you, the streets will. I don't know. I'm from I'm from the suburbs, y'all. <laughs> I am from the suburbs. But it happens sometimes. Sometimes I just I'm sorry. It just comes out of me. So let's talk about the immediate aftermath. Her funeral was held at Reverend um, Ken Hampton's church, Dad's church, right? The Grace Bible Chapel, and. I love this about him because he's a smart dude. He was actually filming the funeral. Hmm. Very smart dude. Cause he wasn't sure. Like I'm thinking though, this is what I'm thinking. He's thinking like, you just don't know who's going to show up to these things. If you watch true crime shows, you know that sometimes people like they need yeah. that attention and they need to see what they did. And so they like to do this stuff. They like to go to funerals. They love to talk on camera Yeah, and like, Oh my gosh, this person's missing. What happened to them? Like this person's like, That is very true. And that is some psycho stuff. But anyways, bravo to Reverend Ken Hampton for taping this. So what's interesting is that he says that her mom, Brenda, Mama Brenda, she turns to him during the funeral and she says, that's the guy who beat her up. And he's like, don't worry, I'm recording this. Like, shh, be quiet. Like, I got this. So this is on the Crime Town podcast. It's never revealed who that person was. But we know from the story I told you that she got two black eyes and it was supposedly from Little D. Right. Right? 
Well, I couldn't find the funeral video, but I did find an article online and it kind of points to who that person could be at the funeral. Hmm. Wait, so who is it? You'll find out next time on the next episode of Dragon Ball Z. Really, Priscilla? Really? Yeah, that's how we end. (laughs) See you guys next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. (laughs) 